So 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, starting in verse 3, page 1200 in the Pew Bible. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's ask God to be with us as we continue on in his word. Father, would you work in our hearts? Would you meet us? Would you speak to us from your word? Would you be present with each one of us? And would you stir us up with joy, with anticipation, with excitement about the blessings that you've poured out upon us? that we might be strong in faith. To the glory of your name, through Jesus Christ. Amen. So, in my work as a pastor, I meet with people uh, who are going through difficulties and experiencing extreme challenges. And I hear different comments from people as they go through these, and the most dangerous words I hear are, I know that God wants me to be happy. Because usually that comes just before they say why they should be allowed to do something that's contrary to what the Bible teaches. Usually they're saying that they know that God wants them to be happy because happiness in this life is what they're fixated upon right now as they go through their difficulties and their trials and their misery. And I understand why they feel that way, but they're looking for an excuse. It's dangerous to think that way because it's a million miles from faith and the compass is pointing the wrong direction. And so I sometimes just wonder how I can help a person who's in that state. You know, how can I be happy? How can I just find happiness now? Um, and where I turn is often right here in First Peter and these verses 6 through 9. The key idea in these, vo- in these verses is joy and rejoicing. You see it in verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice in that coming uh, inheritance, in that promised blessing, those crown jewels of God's promises. And then in verse 8, At the end of verse 8, you're filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy because of what God has promised and what he will do. 
And so there's a, a whole different orientation in the joy. It's not happiness in this life and the things that we're enjoying now, but it's excitement and joy in what God will do. So these verses are a little bit like the, um, the impact laboratory, you know, where they take perfectly good cars and they smash them to find out how good they are. And in these verses, we take perfectly good faith and we run it through all kinds of difficulties and we see how good it is. That's the nature of this passage. And uh, the, the main point, I think, you can see in verse 6. Uh, verse 6 kind of sets the tone. In this, you greatly rejoice, though now. You have great joy, but despite what is going on right now. So it's that irony, that, that clash between my experience of joy in Christ and my experience of suffering and grief in this life. Believing is rejoicing despite difficulties. That's the main idea of the passage. That believing is is looking away to what is coming, to what is promised, to the solid and sure hope that God has given us and finding an excitement and a joy and an anticipation and a delight in those things that are coming uh, despite what may be going on in, in our lives at the time that undermines joy, that steals joy, that takes away our happiness and would even take away our faith altogether if it wasn't something supernatural and God-given. So believing is rejoicing despite difficulties. So the first difficulty we look at, believing is rejoicing despite delay. In verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. So there's a great joy ahead, but not now. There's a delay, and there's a long period of time through which we have to go. It may be measured in lifetimes. We may have to go through our whole life experiencing the delay before we experience the joy. In fact, that's how it will be. Because the joy that is ahead for us is something much greater than anyone will experience in life. So it's, it's uh, rejoicing despite delay. Now, for a little while, he says, it's a little while. And so he minimizes the delay. The great thing about a delay is that the delay will be over. A delay is not a cancellation, it's only a postponement. So if God's promises and his blessings are delayed, we still have the confidence that they will be fulfilled and that he will bring them to pass in our lives. Nothing can stop God's promises. That's what he says in verse 4. We've been born again into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. It's only a delay. There's no change in the promise. 
But how can promises that are far off result in joy now? How can someone who's experiencing grief or who's experiencing torment and turmoil in their relationships, someone who's experiencing misery in their health or you know, the challenges of uh, money or fertility, uh, parenting or being a child of a parent, how can someone in these circumstances experience joy about rewards that are so far off in the future? In the same way that our mouths water when we watch a cooking show or when we talk about the menu that we're going to enjoy at dinner and we anticipate what's coming. Uh, you know, when people are sick, when they're going through pain and when their bodies are, are uh, not right, the worst kind of pain is the kind that you, you, you don't know how much worse it's going to get. But when you know that it's getting better, when you know that there's treatment on the way, when you know that you've turned that corner and somehow there's, there's light at the end of the tunnel, then you start to feel better and the pain seems to subside and it, isn't, it doesn't bother you so much. Friend, there is light at the end of the tunnel. Whatever the difficulties there are in life, even if they're going to get worse, they're going to get so much better. And we have such wonderful delights and joys to look forward to. It makes your mouth water. It gets you excited. You feel encouraged despite whatever you're going through. So how do you rejoice through a long delay? You think about the food. You think about how you're going to uh, feel when this pain is gone and when you get better. You think about what you're going to do when the promises are, are fulfilled. So you think about the promises that God has given. You go back to that treasure trove of God's word. You go back to that treasure trove where you've hidden your treasures in heaven and you start counting all the good things that God is going to pour out on you. You think about tomorrow. How will it be when I'm up out of this bed? What am I going to do? What am I going to do when this joint operation has become a memory in the past and all the physical therapy is over and I'm, I'm back on my feet playing tennis again or, or running. So how do, you, how do you keep anticipation alive? You think about the future. And then another way to, to keep the joy alive is weigh it on the scales. On the one hand, you have now for a little while you're suffering grief in all kinds of trials. And on the other hand, the promise of God's richest blessings poured out on you. And the Bible talks about this, this kind of weighing, this kind of comparison. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says, Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So, Weigh and compare and imagine to yourself what 
kind of wonderful goodness is it that God will pour out upon me so that I will look back on all those trials I went through and say, there's no comparison. This is so good, it far outweighs everything that I went through. And so, uh, you know, those trials and those difficulties I went through, they're like... uh, I hardly remember, remember them. I don't think of them. Today they seem so heavy and gloomy and they're so great around us, but at that time we'll look at them and say, not only was it totally worth it, it was ridiculously worth it. I paid nothing. I've got such a bargain. Seriously, look at how bad it is, but imagine something so good in God's presence that you'll say, No comparison. Weigh it on the scales. You need to believe what you believe. And that's that's what we're saying. You need to believe what you believe. that, uh, That what God has promised, this inheritance that will be so good, that is so sure, and you're kept for it, and you'll be with him, and you'll be with his people, and you'll be completely satisfied. That's what you believe. Now, believe it. And if you believe it, then you have joy in it. How can you not be thrilled about such an expectation? So we need to stir ourselves up in anticipation. And that's what uh, Peter notices there in verse 6. He notices that the believers are filled with anticipation and joy over what will come. So believing is rejoicing despite delay. And then as we move on to verse 7, believing is rejoicing despite discouragements. So verse 7 talks about things that discourage. So he picks up that you've had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. And then verse 7 explains trials for us. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. What are trials? They're things that discourage us. They're things that bring us down. They're things that contradict faith. They're tests of faith. You experience a trial and you either pass or fail. So faith either endures or it gives up, it fails. And so he compares it to gold in the furnace. It's like gold in the furnace, tested and refined by fire, and yet even gold wears out and perishes. So gold is still now even tested in a furnace in ancient times that was a way of testing gold and even today it's used you put the ore or even uh, samples of gold into a fire together with some other chemicals the other metals that would be mixed with the gold in an alloy will react they'll react with the air they'll react with other chemicals they'll be absorbed into other chemicals but gold will not react with anything it will remain pure it will remain true Uh, It's a remarkable thing about gold is that it doesn't react with anything. It stays pure. It stays true. And so it will come out of the alloy and it will be left pure gold. 
Uh, so even though it's put in the fire, it stays pure. Uh, gold loves fire because, gold purifi- because fire purifies the gold. And uh, in the same way, faith loves fire. It's not afraid of fire because faith will always come through the test. So why does God allow trials? It seems like trials and suffering and grief are bad things. And why would God want to allow such bad things in the lives of his people? And so verse 7 says there at the end, so that the genuine of your the the so that your faith may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So that your faith may be proved genuine. And uh, so Jesus' parable of the sower, uh, he talks about how the word of God goes out and falls on different kinds of people's hearts as seed is sown on different kinds of soil. And he describes one kind of soil that receives the word of God very quickly. Uh, Matthew chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. He says, Some seed fell on rocky places. It sprang up quickly because it did not have much soil. The soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Some people believe quickly and they receive the word with joy. But when trials or suffering come because of the word, they quickly fall away. So trials show the difference between genuine faith and empty, false faith. But God doesn't need tests. God knows what the results are going to be anyway. Why does God use tests? Why does he use trials? God does tests not to find out the results, but to publish the results so that everyone can see. Uh, Your report card will be posted at the end of the term, name and all, for everyone to see. All of the details of your performance. So in the book of Job, there's a you know, the famous book about trials. Job, you know, the most righteous man in the earth. And uh, he's, he's uh, fearing God and serving God. And so uh, Satan comes before God and says, the only reason that Job fears God is because you protect him. But take away the protection. Take away the joys of this life and he will surely curse you to his faith. His faith will completely collapse. There's no such thing as gold. And uh, so God says, fine, go and test him. And so Job is tested. And at the end of the book of Job, God finally appears. Job has been struggling with questions and confusion, the same questions and confusion that every one of us has as we go through life, we go through trials, and things don't go the way they're supposed to, and life isn't a happy life, and it seems like God is not managing the world very well, and finally, God comes at the end of the book, and he explains it all, and he shows everyone their report card, and he shows everyone everyone else's report card, and he says, Job, here's where you got it wrong, and you were right by and large. And your friends, they were not right. 
And this is how it will be at the end of the age. God will appear, and he will show us our report cards. And so tests and trials will show us even now a little bit, but then much more clearly what's genuine and what's real, what's valuable. And so in that day, as verse 7 says, there will be praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. You know, um, athletes find races and games difficult, painful, sometimes even risky. So why do leagues continue to sponsor these games? Well, because of praise, glory, and honor. And athletes compete to get measly little prizes, you know, ribbons and little trophies that are totally useless. You have a whole shelf full of trophies. And they're delighted in these things. And they go after them. Well, you think the athletes do it for money? They don't do it for money. The money follows them because of the praise, the glory, and the honor that they achieve in their athletic pursuits. Trials bring joy. You know, um, it's great to have been through the trials and to have your cabinet full of trophies there on the wall. You've been through trials, you've been through suffering, you've been through difficulty, you've, you've been faithful through challenges. Maybe your trial is the trial of having success. Maybe your trial is the trial of having things go well. And it's tempting for you to set your heart on the things of this world and to turn the compass the wrong direction and to find your joy in this life. And so Jesus says it's so hard for the rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Whatever your trial has been, every time you're faithful in that trial, you get another little ribbon on your uniform until you end up with a board of fruit salad, you know, right in front of you. And there are insignias and medallions and there are ribbons and there are awards and there are honors and commendations and you're marked up and you're carrying these things around but nobody sees them. They're all hidden from view. But one day, you'll take up that uniform and the light will shine on you and it will all be seen and there will be praise, glory, and honor Because you were faithful when your faith was tested and tried. Because you endured and because you put Jesus first instead of this world. So for the time being, all you have to show for your trials is a journal with answered prayers in it. A journal on your shelf with the memoirs of your trials and your sufferings and your prayers and your faith and your hope and your endurance, and your patience, and your tears. And that's all you have left. But what a treasure that is. What a treasure it will be. I may have too few honors on that day. And so I need to remember what James says. Consider it pure joy whenever you experience trials of many kinds because they're opportunities 
to glorify God and to get something that's worth more than gold, to rack up treasures in heaven, to store up something so valuable, the very praise of God, something that the earth has never seen its like in terms of real value. That's what I'm earning when I endure. 1 Timothy 3.13, I love this little verse. Uh, It's an encouragement to people who work hard. 1 Timothy 3.13, actually Paul is talking about deacons, a, a a church officer. But what he's saying applies to every Christian. He says, those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Jesus Christ. Oh, that would be a wonderful thing to serve well and to gain that assurance, that great assurance, and to go through life maybe not having all the happiness that I want, but having a great assurance in my faith, being strongly assured because that will fill, my, fill me up with anticipation and that will fill me up with joy as I can really see that these things are real. I've passed the test. My faith is strong, and I really believe what I believe, and it's true, and God will be with me. Just like... um, So you'll, uh, you'll wear your medals in heaven. How do trials bring praise, glory, and honor? How does that work? Uh, In the next verse, verse 8 and 9, we'll come to see that. So we've seen believing is rejoicing despite delay. Uh, Even though we're waiting for a long time, we just live by anticipation. Believing is rejoicing despite discouragements. Though we face discouragements, though we go through trials, we receive confirmation and our joy is strengthened and we rejoice as we go through those trials. And believing is rejoicing despite the distance. Even though the Lord Jesus is so far away, even though we can't see him. That's what he says in verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you're receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So Peter is writing some 30 years after the events of the Gospels, 30 years after the resurrection. He's writing to people 800 miles from Jerusalem. And in those days, uh, if, if you would take the journey on foot, it would be a month or two to get there. Uh, they never saw Jesus. And there are two remarkable things. This is someone they've only heard about, and they love him. And they've never seen him, and because they believe in him, they're filled with this over-the-top joy, inexpressible and glorious joy. So uh, how does this work? This is amazing to Peter. Um, Look look at all that Peter has seen in um, chapter 5 of this book, 1 Peter. He points out that he is an eyewitness. He was an eyewitness of the sufferings of Christ. Peter was an eyewitness of the glories of Christ. He saw him transfigured on the mountain. He saw him 
appearing and having all of his glory revealed uh, together with the other disciples on the mountain. Peter had witnessed Jesus' teaching. He had witnessed Jesus' miracles. And yet he still denied Jesus three times. He still had trouble believing in the resurrection until it was really confirmed to him when Jesus appeared. And Peter had heard those words that were spoken to Thomas, Thomas, doubting Thomas, you know, who I will not believe until I put my finger in, his, in the holes, until I put my hand in his side. And uh, finally Thomas sees the Lord Jesus and he, and he believes. He says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says, you believe because you see. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And those are the ones that Peter is writing to. How can it be that anyone will believe the message? Peter and the apostles are sent out to tell the whole world that Jesus has been raised from the dead. How can anyone believe these things? For Peter himself, it was hard to believe his own eyes. And he had heard Jesus uh, predicting his death and resurrection over and over again, but it didn't sink in. How will anyone believe? Jew or Gentile, much less these Gentiles, hundreds and hundreds of miles away, and they believe. And they believe, and they love him, and they're filled with joy over it. It's amazing. This is the glory of the gospel. The power of the gospel is seen. The presence of the Lord Jesus Christ is seen when people just hear the gospel and they believe. The authority of the Lord Jesus Christ is seen, who has all authority over heaven and earth, and he sends out his word, and people at the ends of the earth hear it, and they actually believe, and they put their life on the line for him. And for his word, because it's so precious, it's worth more than anything. His grace is seen and is glorified in our faith. What a wonderful privilege to have a joy, as he says here, that is glorious. Glorious joy. The very glory of Jesus Christ shining in us as we experience this joy. Dear dying Lamb, Thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. That's the William Cowper hymn. Um, There is a fountain filled with blood. The blood of Christ will never lose its power. So Peter is writing in the shadow of the emperor Nero and Peter is eventually executed by the emperor Nero and this emperor continues on with executions and murders And persecution and following emperors continue on with the persecution. But the gospel continues to spread and grow. And people hear and they believe and they're filled with inexpressible joy and love for Jesus. The barbarians sweep in and they conquer Rome. They conquer the Roman Empire. All the good things that have been built up in civilizations are forgotten and trampled underfoot. But the gospel continues to go out. And uh, it continues to spread. The, uh, the Renaissance comes and then the Enlightenment and people know better and they critique the Bible. But the gospel continues to spread and grow. And it starts going to the ends of the earth. And peoples who had never heard are hearing more and more. 
And so in our day, there are more challenges. There are always challenges. There's always a thief coming to steal the faith, to steal the joys, to steal the promises, to steal the riches. But the gospel will continue to spread because Jesus is present. The less there is in a worldly sense to empower and enable people to believe, the more evident it is that the Holy Spirit is at work. And so the gospel goes out in dark days and brings people to faith. And they're filled with love and joy. And it's evident that this is a move of God. This isn't something human. It's not something that people made up. So though we lack supports, God's word is still true. It's clear. It's true. It's powerful. He sends his spirit. So you love him. You experience the delight of his presence. And this keeps joy alive and contagious. When you open the Bible, expect the Holy Spirit. Don't don't rely on people to encourage you. Don't rely on people to hold up your faith. But expect God to be present and to work in your heart, he himself by his spirit, to speak to you by his word and to give you that joy, that inexpressible and glorious joy. When you pray, pause and think of his presence. Remind yourself of his presence. Uh, Just recognize that he is present. Picture to yourself if you have to, Remind yourself of the truth of his promises, that he will surely bring them all to pass. Stir yourself up to believe what you believe. Count on his joy. Count on his joy. Listen to the words of uh, the book of Philippians, chapter 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. By prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. There's a, there's a joy that sustains God's people. You know, I think the passage that really brings this out is in the Old Testament minor prophet book of Habakkuk. You want to turn there? The book of Habakkuk, chapter 3. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's page 931. Habakkuk, chapter 3. Habakkuk is, um, he comes to God with a couple of complaints. His first complaint is, God, how come you're not paying attention to all the sin in Judah? Aren't you going to do anything about the sins among your people? And then God's answer is, well, I'm going to bring the Babylonians and they're going to wipe it out. They're going to wipe out my people. They're going to wipe out the place of my covenant and only a remnant will remain. And then that's Habakkuk's second complaint is, Lord, how can you bless the Babylonians? This doesn't make any sense. And uh, God says, well, they'll have their day too. And uh, I will reveal my glory through all of these things. And so at the end of the book, 
Habakkuk has heard things that are heart-wrenching, that are painful, that spell the doom of everything he's hoping for and relying on in the whole world. And here's what he says. He says that there is still joy. Uh, Let's pick it up in Habakkuk 3, verse 16. I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud... And there are no grapes on the vines. Though the olive crop fails and the, cro- and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. And here he uses a great little image of joy that is just Hard to explain, hard to account for, hard to understand in any human terms. And the image is a deer that's able to run on the side of a mountain. Have you seen videos of these things? These mountain goats and like, how can they run there? How, it, it's sheer. How come they don't fall down? How are they able to do that? The sovereign Lord is my strength, verse 19. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. God gives joy to his people. The, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Um, you need to believe what you believe. You need to have your compass pointing in the right direction. You need to set your hope and your joy in the things that endure, the things that last, not the things that people have made up which fade. The... Uh, the Inuit Indians of uh, the Eskimos of one part of the, the Arctic region. Uh, when spring comes, they head out on the ice shelf to hunt the narwhal. It's a vital part of their diet. Uh, it gets them through the year. Uh, special vitamin A that they get from the narwhal. Narwhal is that unicorn kind of whale. And uh, so they go, they go way out on the ice shelf in the springtime which is a dangerous thing to do. They get way out there and they're waiting for the narwhal and hopefully they have a good hunt. But they have to be very careful because huge sheets of the ice shelf can break off and start to move almost imperceptibly out to sea. And before you know it, you're out on an island in the middle of the sea that is shrinking and melting and is going to leave you with nothing. Friend, The ice is cracking at your feet. Which side are you on? Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you connected to that great mainland, that great continent of God's promises? And do you have assurance that those promises will come true for you? Have you put your faith in Christ? Or are you on now an island that's adrift, relying on yourself, relying on itself, with no solid resource, no solid connection, nothing but its own dwindling hopes. Are all your hopes in this world which will so soon pass away? Or have you set your hopes on the hope that will endure and will never disappoint? Turn to Christ. Set your hopes on him and he'll hold you firm and fast and he will give you 
joy in this life that you weren't looking for. Joy unaccountable, unexpected, and abundant. Let's pray. Father, would you work in the heart of my friend who is here today, who is on the wrong side of that crack and is content to let the ice shelf drift, who has no hope or thought of your promises. Would you work in his or her heart today and help them to see the great joy of your promises, of your presence, of your authority, of your salvation, the great riches that are theirs for the taking in Jesus Christ. Father, would you be with my friends here today, my brothers and sisters, by faith in Jesus Christ and strengthen them to hold on to that joy. Would you strengthen them to stir themselves up in their faith and their love. Oh Lord, would you do greater things than we expect for the glory of your name. Amen.